If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it to Acts 14, verses 1 through 28, which is all of them. <laughs> Acts 14. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there is one provided for you in the back of the pew right there in front of you. You'll find this on page 782 or 822 of the Pew Bible, depending on which printing of that you have, but it's Acts 14. We're continuing a series through the book of Acts, and I've titled this morning's message, Paul's Terrible, Horrible, Very Bad Day. And uh, that, you may recognize that that's a play on the title of a children's book from many years ago, I think published back in the 70s, called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. And uh, I don't remember much about that story. Alexander's a, maybe a kindergarten a young kid, you know, who I think goes to sleep with gum in his mouth and wakes up with it in his hair. And, you know, and the day goes downhill from there. And you can relate. We all have days like that. I, I couldn't call Paul's day no good, technically, because there were people who came to faith in Christ. But otherwise, as we'll see, uh, he had the kind of day that just about by, by any human measure would qualify as a terrible, horrible, very bad day. And uh, the root cause of its very badness was the, the depravity of the hearts of the people to whom he was preaching. And that's actually the, the, the thrust of the message I want to preach this morning because we want to see in our own hearts a susceptibility to those same tendencies, the, the same depravity um, of those crowds that Paul was preaching to are tendencies that we have ourselves and we want to guard our hearts appropriately in light of what is revealed to us. And I'll say there's, uh, th there's maybe a humorous uh, twist on this this morning. Because my, my message has taken at least substantially different shape just this morning. Or either gotten substantially misshapen. We'll find out in just a few minutes, actually. <laughs> but the, the irony in that is um, the, the, the message that I was feeling led to preach earlier in the week, I sort of resisted preaching on, or at least parts of that on some level, and uh, came back around to, no, that's really the emphasis I, I need to give it. The irony is that, that that has to do with our heart's tendency to go our own way. <laughs> and so, at the, at, at the very least, uh, this will be a train wreck, and, um, and it'll be just a sort of a living illustration of what happens when we go our own way instead of uh, how God has directed us. But in, in any case, it's uh, Acts chapter 14, and let's look at that together. And I'm going to ask you, as always, if you are able to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 1 of Acts 14, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Now at Iconium... They entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. 
But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from those vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia and from there sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Let's pray together. Well, Father, as always, we are... So grateful to be invited into your presence and to hear you speak through your word. Lord, it is our belief that the Bible is your word, living and active, that it is life to us and it is truth to us. We need both to be applied in our lives. You know our needs better even than we do. So Lord, we 
pray as the old song said that you would make the book live to me, O Lord. Show me yourself inside your word. Show me myself and show me my Savior and make the book live to me. And so we invite you now to speak, Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, Paul, along with Barnabas, is continuing here in Acts 14 on his first missionary journey. Once again, there's a map on the back of your bulletin that just shows how that journey unfolded from Antioch and then uh, ultimately back to Antioch. The past two weeks, we looked at Acts 13 and saw that they were sent out from there in Antioch in Syria, and they sailed over to Cyprus and made their way across the island. That was about 140 miles or so across the island. So think of a distance from here to somewhere near the other side of Raleigh or something like that. That's about the length of Cyprus Uh, having sailed about 60 miles to get there and then 140 miles or so across. They sailed back up to the mainland, went up to Antioch in Pisidia. And I said, you know, we might call that Little Antioch, like we have Little Washington in North Carolina, and as in contrast to Washington, D.C. And there was an Antioch in Syria, which was the one they left from. That was the big Antioch, and Antioch of Pisidia, a smaller city. But in Antioch, they preached in the synagogue, and Paul was opposed by Jewish leaders, um, and so they went to the Gentiles instead. You may remember that, and the Gentiles rejoiced at that. Many of them believed, but the Jews then incited some of the devout women and prominent men of the city, leading men of the city, and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district Entirely, And when they left there, they went to Iconium, which is where we pick up uh, the narrative in chapter 14. And so what I want to do here um, is just kind of walk through, again, fairly quickly, just sort of a summary of, of what we read here in Acts 14. Maybe highlight a couple things as we go, as we go and then um, kind of offer some application of some of what we see there. But in Iconium... They went once again into the synagogues and proclaimed the gospel there. This would become Paul's pattern where, pretty much wherever he went. If there was a synagogue, he went there first. To the Jews first, he would say later, later in Romans, and also to the Greeks. And once again, there were many who believed, but others who opposed them. You know that as we talk about sort of wanting to be inspired and motivated to be a church that lives beyond, it ought to be a little bit of encouragement to us to know um, that we should expect people who oppose us. Now, that sound, sounds a little, uh, you know, sort of contradictory or counterintuitive, um, but in other words, it's just part of it. It was part of it for Paul, and it's been part of it all down to the, through the centuries, and um, there have to be some people who say no and who even Uh, offer scorn in return to get to those who are appointed to eternal life. But uh, again, they 
some were somewhat, somewhere opposed. The people were divided, it says, and some sided with the Jews, others with Paul and Barnabas. But notice in verse 3, Paul's response was to stay there a long time, preaching the word. They opposed him, so he stayed a long time. Right? Uh, that's probably not our natural reaction. We might want to get out of there quickly. After some time, their opponents started devising a plan to stone them, and that was their cue to leave. And they went on to Lystra. At Lystra, it said there is where Paul encountered a man that had been crippled since birth. It's really similar to the encounter that Peter had, uh, Peter and John, um, going into the temple, if you recall, the lame beggar who was there. He had been crippled, lame since birth. And Peter told him to rise up, and he went walking and leaping and praising God in the temple. You may recall it's a similar kind of encounter here uh, where Paul tells this man to get up, and he does. He begins walking, and the crowd interprets that as um, a sign that the gods have come down to visit them, Zeus and Hermes specifically. They start making arrangements to worship them. And so Paul and Barnabas are deeply moved by this. They're not angry or sort of judgmental or critical. They don't mock them in any way for it, but they are deeply moved by that. It says when they heard of this in verse 14 and 15, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? Because they know for, for one thing, they do not want to receive worship that belongs to God alone. Right? They understand this. You may remember in Acts 12, Herod, by contrast, was worshipped as a god by the people of Tyre, and he gloried in it momentarily until he was sort of eaten from the inside out by worms, died a heinous death by receiving glory that only belonged to God. And so they, they understand that, but they're also just concerned for the people. There seems to be a genuine concern here for the people, so they urge them not to offer those sacrifices, but to turn from vain things, they say, to the living God. And then Jews came along from Antioch and Iconium and turned the crowd against Paul, and they stoned him and dragged him out of the city to leave him for dead. This is, of course, what makes the day especially terrible, horrible, and very bad. So, there's a real good chance, a really, really good chance that no matter how bad your bad day is this week, it's not that bad, right? But, but, but even, I mean, think about it because it's, it's really especially so if you consider in verse 18, they are trying to restrain them from worshiping them. And in the very next verse, they stone them instead. That is quite a turn of events. They probably weren't prepared for that one. But Paul rose up, it says, and went on to Derby and preached to them in that city before returning to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. So he went back to the city where he had been stoned. Then he went back to the cities that had sent the people to stone him there. Did you notice it was people from Antioch and Iconium that went to Lystra to stir up the crowd to stone him? He goes back to Lystra 
and then to Iconium, and then to Antioch. And he doesn't go passing through those cities in the dark of night, which, if, if we're honest, is probably what we would do if we couldn't found, find a route around the city. Because probably many of us would just want to bypass those cities altogether on the way home. He went back through those cities, or rather to those cities, and encouraged uh, the disciples there, appointed elders there before finally sailing back to Syrian Antioch and returning to the church where God had sent them out in the first place. That's sort of the journey in a nutshell. And as I mentioned in previous weeks, this first missionary journey begins Luke's focus on Paul. So in the, in the first 12 chapters of Acts, it's, it's primarily focused in Jerusalem, more on Peter than any other single individual. And um, at the end of chapter 12, Peter sort of exits stage left, so to speak. He kind of goes into hiding for a period of time because of an attempt to kill him. And then Paul emerges as sort of the featured character on the scene. And so the, the most plain and just basic right on the surface points of Acts 13 and 14 seem to be to, to explain how the gospel spread, you know, how it began to spread to the uttermost parts of the world. Um, he seems to want to draw out some parallels between Paul and Peter. To, to, there, there are some real obvious similarities in the way Paul's ministry takes shape, including the healing we, that we just uh, read about, this crippled man, and the way Peter's ministry took shape. So in other words, his, his apostleship is authenticated, his message is authenticated in similar ways to Peter's. That seems to be part of the point of what Luke wants to tell us. And finally, it seems that one of the points and one of the themes that continues through the book of Acts and will, will continue even beyond here is that persecution, opposition, and tribulation are part of God's plan for spreading the gospel. That that's not a sign of his disfavor. It's not a sign that they've stepped out of sync somehow, but rather just as he predicted that Paul would suffer things for the name of Christ, so he does, and it's just part of it. That the gospel advances through persecution, not around it. So those, those are some of just the, the, the obvious, most basic points of Acts 13 and 14. But I want to take a, a look at this from a slightly different perspective this morning. You know, because it's common for us to read biblical accounts like these and want to identify ourselves with the main character, right? Or, or so the, the good guys, the heroes in the story. So in this case, we would want to see ourselves as Paul and draw, you know, draw lessons for how we live our life in, in the way, uh, by, by sort of by way of understanding how Paul lived his and walked. You know, he's the Christian guy in the story, so we assume we're most like him. But come on. We're not Paul, really, right? Paul was the guy, I think I mentioned recently, you know, who said he was crucified with Christ, but nevertheless, he lives not him, but Christ who lives in him. He would say to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he put his money where his mouth is, so to speak. 
being stoned almost to death, and then he, he rose up and went to preach in the next city before returning to all those cities I just, just mentioned, preaching again, encouraging the disciples in the places where he just got stoned. Now that is like way beyond committed, right? I mean, he's just totally abandoned to the cause of Christ. I mean, how much do you and I want to claim we identify with that? I mean, we, we, we have a hard time, you know, getting to church when it's raining, okay? <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just paying attention, okay? I, you know, I, from up here, I can sort of see, you know. But anyway, I'm not taking attendance or anything, so you don't have to worry. <laughs> Oh, Lord, help us. Uh, but, but, but the, you know, the point is, you know, we, we need to examine our own hearts more carefully and just be honest about what we find because we do aspire to be like Paul, right? And we should aspire to be like Paul. But I think we'll see we have as much in common with the crowds as we do with the apostles, and specifically, I want to consider that our fallen humanity is inclined to worship according to our desires rather than according to God's design. Our fallen humanity is inclined to worship according to our desires rather than God's design. That is not to say that we always worship according to our desires or that we never worship according to God's designs. It's just to say that there is an inclination in us always wanting to pull our own way. Part of what we see in the response of the crowd to the healing of the crippled man is, number one, the inclination of man's heart toward worship. The inclination of man's heart, that is, every human being, there is a sense of the divine in the human heart, a sense of deity. There's an awareness a consciousness of the divine. And, and that the other thing we see there is that apart from God's grace, man worships false gods instead of the one true and living God. Now, Genesis 1 through 3, you know, set up uh, something important, essential for us to understand about the nature of man. Number one, in that man is created in the image of God, right? That, we're, that we bear his image, and so we bear inherently a, a sense of dignity and worth. We also bear an awareness of him and his moral law, even written on our consciousness. As image bearers of God, that's true. And yet, Genesis 1-3 through also tells us that we're fallen in sin. And so in spite of the fact that we're made in the image of God, we do not worship him or follow him in our own natural state. Romans 1 actually uh, details this reality both about our nature and God's revelation of himself and our response to that. It, it details that uh, in a more careful way. And I actually want to turn there if we can. It's just a few pages forward. I didn't mark the page number in the Pew Bible if you're there, but Romans one, if you don't mind turning over there, because I want to read something. I cited this passage um, recently in a sermon, and it's one of these that's just, I would say, of 
if you were memorizing passages of Scripture, I, I would put this one in, uh, in, in probably the top five of passages of the New Testament to understand something essential about the nature of man in light of what God has done in the finished work on the cross in the way of salvation. Romans 1, and, and, and uh, let's, let's look at verses 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, I, I wanted to look here uh, for, for, for this reason to see that this, this is a statement that God has revealed himself universally to all mankind, even his eternal power and divine nature, it says. He's revealed himself to man, but what does man do? He suppresses the truth, and he exchanges the truth of God for a lie and worships the creature rather than the creator. So God offers this gift of a revelation of himself to man. And it's like the day after Christmas, taking the gift to customer service and making an exchange for something you really want. This is the response of mankind to God's revelation. To exchange the truth for a lie. Worship the creature rather than the creator. And so God turns him over to that. Now that's what Romans 1 says and uh, it's a strong enough passage I wanted you to turn there too so you could read it and say I'm not making it up or paraphrasing it. But let's, let's look back now at Acts 14 because here we see that truth, that reality played out in Lystra. In the respect that, number one, there is an undeniable miracle. Okay, so God's revealing something to the people in Lystra. There is an undeniable miracle. A man who's been crippled since birth, he's never used his feet. Now he's using his feet. He's up walking. And, of course, they respond by wanting to worship Zeus and Hermes. They think the gods have come down, come down to visit him. And we might excuse them for not understanding that at that point. Until there is a clear revelation. I mean, Paul says in verses 15 through 17, no, 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 no. We're men just like you. Don't worship us, but, but we have good news for you. Turn from these vain things 
to the living God and worship him. He is, sort of by implication here, he is the author of this great work that you've just seen. But even, even then, it says in verse 18, what? That they scarcely restrained them from offering sacrifices to them. Even though there's this undeniable miracle and a very clear and explicit revelation of the source of that miracle, they still want to worship according to their own ways and understanding. It's, it, it is a picture of how Romans 1 as a universal truth plays out in a specific setting among specific people. Now, we must not forget that even as believers, even though we're redeemed, even though we are regenerate or born again, even though we've had a heart of stone removed and a heart of flesh put in, we still live in fallen vessels, right? As, as, uh, as I heard somebody say before, you know, I, I got a new heart, but I still got the same old body, and my body still got the same old brain, you know? We still live in fallen vessels yet to be perfected, and it means we are still inclined in any number of ways to just go our own way. Now, and we know this is true on, on some levels because represented in this room are, are, are struggles with a whole host of sins, right? Not that you individually struggle with a whole host of them, hopefully, uh, although maybe, and it depends on how, we, how, many, how many constitutes a host, I don't know. But at least between us, I mean, there's sort of the whole variety of sins represented that we struggle with, we continue, even though we're born again. And even though we struggle less now than we once did, right? Even though maybe we're tempted less often than we once were and so forth. We are progressively being made more and more in the likeness of Jesus. And yet it's a lifelong struggle that one day will be delivered from entirely as the saying goes that we were, we were saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And we will be saved ultimately from the very presence of sin. That'll be a good day. And in the meantime, we continue to struggle with it. And so, likewise, we continue to be drawn toward worshiping according to our own desires. That even though maybe it is not worship of false gods to the same degree and in the same way that it is here among the people of Lystra. Uh, that born-again people don't go off worshiping Zeus and Hermes, and yet we're still inclined to worship according to our own desires. A couple of weeks ago, I, I very briefly, uh, sort of at the, at, at the conclusion of a sermon, just cautioned us against fashioning a God in our own image. Right, imagining God as just a really good version of us and then worshiping that God. And so we might, you know, uh, at, at one time, you know, sort of in our own imagination and uh, sort of dress God up as a Wall Street banker who wants to help us secure success or dress him up as Uncle Sam who wants to, wants to preserve the republic, so to speak. And we sort of, that's the emphasis of the, the God we worship. But it seems in the 21st century, what's emerging as the prevailing uh, notion of God 
is a God that's dressed up in flip-flops and board shorts. And he hangs out on the beach and he's just chill, you know? By the way, I am not at all saying this is the way God is if you're tracking the message. But rather, um, that we're inclined to fashion God according to our own likings and then worship that God. And this, this I'm, I'm putting my own language to this. I'm attaching my own picture to it. But the, a notion of God that's just, he's just kind of chill. No worries. You know, come by whenever you want. I just want to hang out with you. I just want to be your friend you know, or whatever, but sort of a real heavy emphasis on that. And it's that sort of God that we have fashioned and that then we offer worship to. Among professing evangelicals in America, there continues to be an an almost almost a splintering of movements. Um, So, you know, that if you think back to the Reformation where, uh, where, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church split and, you know, or people split off from the Roman Catholic Church and so there was a Protestant church and that there were sort of branches of that. And it's like down through the centuries, there's just this splintering um, like cracks in the ice, you know, where you see them just continue to multiply over and over and over again um, to the point that today there's just this sort of innumerable movements in which people have just slightly different nuances of understanding about how church ought to be and what worship ought to be like. And so sort of create their own little uh, community around that. And in some of those cases, not all, but in some, there seems to be perhaps an unconscious assumption that everyone in the last 2,000 years of church history has gotten it wrong. That, That in the 21st century, the whole world can can be thankful that some American guy opened the Bible and has understood more about the New Testament church than anybody who lived before, even those who just lived in the decades or, or centuries that immediately followed. And, we, and we, we have a tendency to see in the Bible things that confirm what we already believe or want to believe and to overlook the things that challenge our beliefs. Now, that's really true of all of us in every generation, by the way. Um, but, but again, this sort of this goes to, if I'm not doing a good job of uh, connecting all the dots here, I told you it could be a train wreck. But anyway, uh, so it, it goes to this point that we are inclined, our hearts are inclined to want to worship according to our own desires. So we fashion a God accordingly. We see in the Bible things that support that view. We overlook the things in the Bible that challenge it. Oh, and remember that even if we miss the mark, no big deal, because God is just chill. This in spite of the fact that the first four of the Ten Commandments essentially can be summed up as worship the right God rightly. That's, that's for the Ten Commandments. That's more or less the message. Worship the right God rightly. In an effort to, to 
understand God as being relatable to us and then, and then communicate that to people, that's obviously important, right? I mean, if, you, if we do get beyond the walls of the church, if we get out and try to talk to people, we, we, we must um, represent to them a God who, who enters our world, right? And that enters relationship with them. That's part of what he's revealed about himself. But, but at times in an effort to understand that and communicate that, his relatability, his, his eminence, we actually strip him of much of his transcendent glory and hence fashion him into just a good version of us. And it was Paul who wrote in 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 and 16, that God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And God is that and way more than that. In fact, I'd say, again, this is sort of one of these parenthetical references, not in my notes here anywhere. Uh, I, I think one of the really helpful phrases that we could, uh, we could sort of add in our own thinking as we think and talk about God is, but not merely, okay? So if I say, God is uh, our friend, but not merely our friend. God is king, but not merely king. God is father, but not merely father. Because part of our error comes in understanding one aspect of God, right? One manifestation or expression. And that's, again, sort of fashion in our own minds, a version of that, and then that's what we worship. He is, he is those things, blessed, sovereign, king of kings, lord of lords, immortal, and dwelling in unapproachable light, and way more than that. And we ought to delight to worship him as he has revealed himself and in the way that he has revealed. And not, not according to our own desires, but according to his design. And, and I have no interest, friends, in putting a yoke of bondage on anyone. So the, the point here is not to replace prescriptive forms of Jewish worship with just prescriptive forms of Christian worship. Right? And that's been done over and over down through the centuries of the church. In fact, it's, it's another one of the human tendencies. We, 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 man in his fallenness tends to drift toward either licentiousness on one hand, or he just to, has total license to do whatever he wants to do, or legalism on the other. And they're really just different expressions of the same uh, human depravity. And so the point is not to uh, replace one prescription with another. In fact, the, the point of my message this morning is not to be prescriptive at all. But as a, as a theologian named Gerhardus Voss said, legalism lacks the supreme sense of worship. It obeys, but it does not adore. Legalism lacks the supreme sense of worship. It obeys, but it does not adore. But let us not presume to replace it with a worship that claims to adore 
but does not obey because we fashioned a God who really doesn't demand much of of us at all. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we just confess again, you are our great God. And we, and we can testify. We can testify on a personal level. You've made yourself known to us. When we were far off, you brought us near. I was that one sheep you left the 99 to retrieve and to bring back into the fold. And we praise you for that, that you have made yourself real and relatable to us. But Lord, it is our heart's desire to worship you for who you are as you have revealed yourself to be. And you've revealed it in written form in what we have now numbered as almost 1,200 chapters of Scripture, over 30,000 verses of it. Lord, you've, you've revealed it to us in writing, and we don't have to just imagine or even listen to a bunch of podcasts to find that out. But Lord, you've, you've written it for us, for our good. So Lord, would you just grow us in our understanding of that revelation as you expand our heart's desire to know more of you. Lord, we do acknowledge that we, like sheep, have gone astray and that we, like all the other sheep, still tend to want to stray. And apart from your grace... Apart from your work in our hearts, we will go astray. Not only because we are deceived at times, but because that's exactly where our flesh wants to go. Lord, would you keep us close to you with a passion to follow hard after you. To worship you in spirit and in truth. Because you are exceedingly worthy of that worship. Lord, whatever um, way this truth needs to be applied to hearts today, would you do so as only you can by your spirit and by your grace in the name of Jesus. Amen.